When the gods war, much of humanity can but tremble in their shadow. A select few possess the courage to shape the fate of the world, and their saga can only be written in blood. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author John Gwynn. The first entry in his new Bloodsworn saga, The Shadow of the Gods, is out now from Orbit Books. John and I discuss Viking reenactment, the pros and cons of various melee weapons, and the best way to escape from a suit of mail. John was such a pleasure to chat with. Let's see what he had to say. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, John. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's awesome to be here, Travis. Thank, thanks so much for the invite, mate. I, I appreciate you thinking of me and in, inviting me on. Good to be here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I feel like the only natural place to start this talk is mentioning your author photo. You're lounging in a chair in the middle of a meadow with a big axe and two even bigger dogs. So how did that photo come about? Oh, you know, that was a lot of fun. So that's before my first book was published. I had my deal and I was told I needed an, an author photo. and. Um, me and my family have always been into, you know, dress up and medieval um, fairs and uh, reenactment and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I thought rather than doing the standard kind of headshot for authors, I, I, um, I thought we could maybe have a bit of fun in the field. So my, me and the family went up to my, my son's a farmer and it was his field. So we, we, we went up there and just had some fun for the day. Took my mate up there who I've known since I was 16 with a camera and he just snapped away while we we were um you know hanging out playing with the dogs doing a bit of combat and just just messing around and those photos just kind of came out of that day that we we spent mucking around in in the field so i thought they i i submitted them to uh, my agent and he said that's fantastic love it he submitted it to the my publishers and they were like oh this is different <laughs> but, but yeah so, so it kind of just came out of out of having a having a bit of a laugh in a field with the family but yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm pleased with it it gets a lot of comments so it's always good yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and I had fun seeing on your uh, website's About Me page uh, all the kind of behind-the-scenes photos from that day as well. Your whole family looked like they were dressed up as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah, everyone was, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess uh, kind of jumping into interview proper here, uh, can you remember what first made you fall in love with fantasy? Crikey, yes, I can, actually. It's quite a clear memory. I was um, seven or eight at school, and my teacher sat the class down around, and we all sat around in a little half circle, and he pulled out a book which was called um, The Book of Three by Lloyd Alexander, and it's book one of the Pridane Chronicles. Disney made book one and two of that series into a film called The Black Cauldron sometime after that. But anyway, he started reading that, and I was hooked. I just loved it. You know, it's, it's kind of inspired by Welsh mythology, and it's your, your classic hero's tale. But um, I remember going home and, and pleading and begging and grinding my mother down so that she took me into town that weekend and she bought the first three books in the series I think for me and that was it you know that that was my first fantasy book that I remember and I was hooked from that point so after that you know it's that slippery road of um hobbits and black riders and giant spiders and minotaurs you know because I I loved kind of mythology as much as his as fantasy I think so yeah that was how I, I got hooked on fantasy yeah, I know um, 
Prydain is definitely one of my foundational fantasy series as well. Absolutely loved them at the time, forgot about them for over a decade, and then uh, relearned about them not too long ago. So I'm thinking I might try to give them another go for the nostalgia, and I heard that they hold up really well. Yeah, yeah, they're great. And I, I, I remember enjoying reading them to my children as well, you know, as bedtime stories, because, you know, that's one of the perks of being a parent is that you get to in, indoctrinate your children with your passions, I suppose. <laughs> so you can read stuff that you love. Um, and they, they've just they just got to sit there and listen. Fortunately, they I think they enjoyed it too. And uh, on the note of indoctrinating with passions, uh, I love that you're so into reenactment. And one of my favorite stories that I've heard you share before is getting stuck in a coat of mail. Uh, so <laughs> I'm curious, how exactly does one get unstuck from a coat of mail? <laughs> sometimes with pliers or an angle grinder, sometimes just with some helpful <laughs> friends. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was oh, cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's not as easy as you'd think being a Viking. Yeah, uh, surprise. <laughs> but yeah, so I was reading through, you recently did a chat with us on the Fantasy Inn as part of our Common Room Conversation series where you and uh, Christian slash Miles Cameron uh, talked about weapons and fiction. Yeah, and one yeah. thing that you talked about that I thought was interesting was different types of Viking axes. So I'm curious, what is the difference between a bearded axe and a long axe? And which do you think is the superior weapon? Okay, so a, a bearded axe um, has got like a hook at the end of it and they're usually they're usually hand axes so in combat they would often be used or certainly in our reenactment that you use them so that you hook over your opponent's shield rim and you can pull it down and then your comrades either side of you or behind you have an opening to stab whoever it is um, that you're fighting so that's quite handy in a shield wall context and also in a shield wall a smaller weapon with a um uh, so say a, a hand axe or a, a sax, which is a, a long knife, basically, are often quite useful in shield wall because it's very cramped conditions and you don't have a lot of room to swing. Um, but a long axe is also known as a Dane axe. That was kind of the um, go-to weapon for elite Viking warriors. And I know that um, well, Anglo-Saxon warriors as well. Uh, Harold Godwinson, King of England, you know, the Battle of Hastings, his elite Huskals, who were his bodyguard, most of them are reputed to have uh, um, used long axes or Dane axes as their their kind of main weapon. I mean, I know in our reenactment group that you kind of have a, a ladder of weapons that you're taught and learned. So you start off with a spear, and then uh, you go on to hand axe, and then you can go on to sword ranged weapons, you know, bow and arrow and, and slingshot. And then at the very last weapon, really, that you're taught is the long axe. And that's the weapon that is considered the elite weapon in our Viking reenactment group, certainly. And it's not easy to use. It's got a very long-hafted, and it's quite a skillful weapon to get your head around. So obviously, um, axes, weapons, they're tools. So it's which one fits the job. But um, if you're in a kind of a open combat, melee combat uh, in Viking style, then usually the long axe is the most dangerous weapon to go up against and the, the people you tend to avoid if you see them on the field. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, yeah, but, but also obviously in, in a shield wall, a long axe isn't much good because you, you need room to set your feet and start swinging that thing around your head, you know. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Is it, uh, it's hard for me to kind of uh, have the expertise to recognize the different weapons. Is that a long axe that's in your author photo? Yes, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, so a long S basically just means that the haft is long. It's you know usually almost <laughs> the sense. length of your. <laughs> it's usually the length of your body. You know, five foot ish, five to six feet long. Um, whereas a hand axe is, you know, like it says in the tin, you can use it with one hand, and the haft is usually you know something like that. I could probably go and grab a couple if you could just give me thirty seconds. Yeah, sure, that'd be great. Hello, mate. So I'm back again. Okay, so I've brought a couple of things out here. This isn't an axe at all, but that's a sax or a sax. Okay. So this is kind of a, a Viking knife, which would be um, something that you would suit well for a shield wall because it's good for, you know, those kind of short stabbing, thrusting motions above or below a shield. Yeah, that is a very impressively sized knife. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that almost looks like a full sword to me. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's it's probably the same equivalent of a Roman gladius. That kind of. I mean, okay. Saxes or saxes came in all shapes and sizes, and they would range from you know eating knife size up to kind of a combat sized weapon. And the combat sized ones were, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd compare them to the Roman gladius. You know, that kind of length, almost a sword. Okay. So that. It's a bearded axe. If you see the head, it's got this kind of hook. Gotcha. Yeah, that you that you can hook. You know, you can hook over shield rims, or you can hook into people's clothes and just drag them off balance, which is 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 very handy. And it's got a shorter haft. And then here, this is my long axe. These are all blunted because okay. they're for reenactment. So I, you, you can use the, these in in battle um, on the field, and you're not you're not going to risk cutting anyone open you might give them a bruise or two and you can see that kind of the length of the half it just keeps keeps on going oh wow yeah yeah (laughs) very uh appropriately named it's 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 tall so that's a long axe bearded axe and a a sax viking knife sax and I do love that most of these show up in your book as well. Uh, so on that note, let's go ahead and start talking about the Shadow of the Gods. Uh, <laughs> do you have a pitch for us? Uh, what is the Shadow of the Gods about? Okay, so the Shadow of the Gods is really, it's my love song to Norse mythology. You know, one of the things when I look back to my childhood that I've, I really loved is those tales of, of Norse mythology of Beowulf and his band of monster-hunting warriors and within Norse mythology, I rem- you know, the thing that stands out to me is Ragnarok, that end of day's battle between all the gods, you know, and all of Norse mythology and all those tales, Thor and Odin and Loki and all the gang, Fenrir, all aimed towards that kind of last battle where they'd all face off against each other. And, of- and um, you know, if you know a little bit about your Norse mythology, then you know that basically they fought each other to extinction and they all died, uh, give or take one or two. So, um that was kind of the original inspiration and starting point for, for um, the shadow of the gods. It, so it's a, it's an epic fantasy series that's inspired by Norse mythology and specifically Beowulf and Ragnarok. And I've tried to build a world that, that kind of feels Norse and epic and Viking. And I've tried to throw in a lot of kind of um, Norse mythology and kind of Scandinavian folklore type elements so i i've uh, researched um a lot of the kind of the folk tales and the monsters that you'd find in scandinavian folklore and kind of drawn upon ones that maybe aren't so common i mean you'll find trolls in there which everyone knows about but you'll also find creatures like um the nakan 
who are uh, unpleasant creatures that that um, lurk in in water or things like um, spurtus. Again, they're like nasty kind of little almost insect-like creature with a sting that you can ins- kind of bind to your will if you know the, the right things to do. Thrower spirits, which are which are the spirits of ash trees. Um, so I've thrown, I've tried to put all these these kind of things in the in the mix to give it a real kind of Scandinavian slash Norse mythological flavour and build a story that's inspired by you know tales of Ragnarok and Beowulf. So I've got uh, I've got um, bands of monster hunting mercenaries. You've got uh, the all, all it's set in a, in a land where the gods are dead. But their bones and their kind of their relics scatter the land, and they're infused with power. So you've you've got the human race kind of rising out of the ashes uh, of this cataclysmic battle that happened a few hundred years ago, and it, and so you've got these power struggles between um, you know human humankind as they're establishing their kind of petty kingdoms, and so they're employing these mercenary bands to go and find these magical relics that can. Um, might give them the you know the upper hand in their individual quests for power. So you've got all that going on, and you've also got um, the other big element in there is um, the fact that even though the gods are dead, their bloodlines endure. So um, I've made up my own kind of pantheon of Norse gods, so that it's not Odin and Thor and Loki, but um, you know you'll you'll see kind of echoes of that. But mine, I've based mine on. Um, uh, so, they, so for example, you'll have the dragon god, you'll have the the wolf god, the bear god, um, the eagle god, and so on. Because a lot of a lot of Norse mythology, the gods um, were into their shape shifting. So it's something that I wanted to kind of keep in there that that little that tone of Norse mythology. The original painting of gods in my world, they were all shapeshifters, but they were quite happy to mix with humankind, you know, like the Greek gods and procreate. So they have bloodlines in the human race, and those bloodlines can share in their kind of their qualities. So, for example, this is where I got the term, um, you know, I wanted to put berserkers in my story, and the berserkers are people who are descended from the bear god, Bursa. And under certain circumstances, they can display characteristics that are reminiscent of that god, Bursa. So they will become stronger. They can go into a savage frenzy. They'll grow teeth and claws and so on. And so I've got all these kind of the survivors or the um, the offspring of the gods still alive in this world. But usually and under those circumstances with the gods or people who have godlike powers, they're usually kind of the apex people you know they're the people who have the power but um, i've turned that around a bit and so the idea is that the human race they despise the gods now because they almost destroyed the world in their final battle they sucked the human race into it and so there is a great deal of death and destruction which the human race now just blame the gods for and so they really despise the gods and so they despise their offspring as well so these people who are I've called the tainted because they're tainted with the God's bloodline are now hunted in this new world. And um, they're either hunted and executed or they're hunted and enslaved because of their specific powers. So for example, Jarl's lords or Queens would, would um, they would want 
you know, a, a, a warband of berserkers because they're quite handy to have in a, in a fight, but they're enslaving them with uh, magical collars. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And you've got uh, Ulfethnar, who are descended from the wolf god. Uh, you've got uh, the Hundar, who are descended from the hound god. So they're great as, like, trackers and scouts and so on, you know. So I've tried to kind of come up with, with these different qualities and attributes that the offspring of the gods would have. So you have people with this, these bloodlines living in this world, and if they're free, then they try to keep it quiet. You know, they don't want people to find out about this because that's a quick way to getting a slave collar around your neck and being thrown into battle. So, you know, there's all kind of different dynamics in there. But at its heart, it's an epic fantasy. Uh, it's about friendship family, you know, those things which are always some kind of themes of mine, but in hopefully a very kind of Norse setting. That's not a very short pitch, I'm afraid. I might have got a bit carried away there, (laughs) but that's it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's great. Uh, It's uh, chock full of all kinds of stuff that I feel like a lot of epic fantasy fans really love to see. But yeah, I'm curious what you said about doing some research there into uh, like Norse legends, Norse mythology, uh, Scandinavian folklore. Uh, so what kind of research did you do? What was that process like? Is there any particular book that was really helpful? Oh, crikey. I mean, my you see, I, I came to writing a bit later in my life. I was in my mid-30s when I started writing. That's only because I really never believed that I could write. I never gave it any thought because I just didn't think I'd be up to the job. Um, I mean, I've always read voraciously books coming out of my ears, but um, it's only that my, my kind of life circumstances changed. My daughter, Harriet's profoundly disabled. Back in uh, the early 2000s, I was a teacher at a local university, but she she became extremely unwell. So I just stepped out of teaching for a while to, to help at home with my wife, who was looking after her. So I found myself at home pretty much 24-7, and I thought, oh, I could do with a hobby that I could do from home. And I, and that's another moment I remember very clearly. I, Me and the family, we just got back from watching The Two Towers at the, uh, at the cinema, and we were all sitting around having dinner just saying how awesome it was. And my wife said, you know, you, you should try writing a book. You want to do a hobby? Try writing a book. And I said, oh, don't be silly. I couldn't do that. You know, and explain to her that you need uh, things like plot and characters and also some talent. So um, I said, you know, don't be silly. And then my children kind of got excited about it and they started saying, oh, go on, Dad, have a go. And we, we sat talking about it. And so eventually I, I sat there and I thought, you know what? That actually might be fun. I'll, I'll have a go. So I, you know, I, I set about starting to write a book. But as soon as I sat down, I suddenly, I very quickly realized that I didn't know how to write or how to go about writing a book. The only way I knew how to write is how I'd been taught it or how I'd learned at university, which was, um, you know, my, there was a great tutor I had who very, would very famously say, the way to pass a degree is to read and then to read and then to read some more. And, you know, he was talking about research, obviously. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. I threw myself into research, except I wasn't researching, you know, your, your dry university stuff. I was researching Celtic mythology and, and Roman Greek mythology and Norse mythology and, and um, how to make a sword and wolf pack behavior and, you know, just and history as well. Because I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a history geek. I love history. And so um, I threw myself into kind of historical research and anything that inspired me 
or kind of made me think, oh, that's cool. I just kind of noted down and it all went into the, um, the formation of the world I was making. So that's how I started writing Malice, which was um, my first book. And that was part book one of the faithful and the fallen. And so that's really, I've just carried on. That's how I, that's how I write now. So when I started this new series, um, the Bloodsworn saga, I, you know, I did exactly the same thing. I just, um, I went through all of that Norse mythological stuff. I pulled all of that out and read through all of that. The Icelandic sagas, um, they were fascinating and a real insight into kind of Scandinavian culture the poetic edda the prose edda they're really the source books you know that have that have the originals for um all of that norse mythological good stuff the volsunga saga you know about sigurd and gudrun and the dragon fafnir um and on top of that a lot of kind of historical stuff about the viking era you know so anything from 800 ad up to 1066 and then there's, there's there's lots of great books you can you can um pick up for that so some book recommendations i'd re- definitely recommend um children of ash and elm by neil price and that's a, a historical textbook and uh, you know neil price really knows his stuff he's a lecturer at Uppsala university and that's you know and that's really a very in-depth and detailed look at viking era history from and just covers everything about their culture you know from the clothes they wore to how they built boats um you know it's really fascinating read i mentioned the poetic and the prose editors if you're into the norse mythology those are really the places to start that you know they're the source material and they're really wonderfully written there's a real sense of humour, I think, running through um, Norse mythology, which, which I really like. Another book I'd recommend is called um, Vaisen, and it's by um, Johan Egerkrans, and uh, it's an illustrated book of Scandinavian creatures from folklore and mythology, and, uh, and that's been a goldmine for me, really. That was, that was re- you know, a fantastic book to... Um, to just just start to discover and scratch the surface of these of these weird and wonderful creatures that live in in um, Scandinavian folklore and folk tales. Anything else? Any other books to recommend? I'd recommend if you just want a novel about kind of a Viking style, then I would recommend The Longships by Franz Bengtsson. I think that's his name. Written back in the forties or fifties, I think it's quite an, it's an older book, but it's about a, a Viking called Red Orm. And his adventures, and that really, for me, captures everything that that you'd love to see in kind of a Viking tale. You know, it's a lot of fun. It's great sense of humour in it. So yeah, those are the books I'd recommend to kind of start off with if if you're into into Norse mythology and Viking era history, definitely. Yeah, no, that's great. Those sound fascinating. Uh, so thank you for adding even more to my uh, to be read list. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, as someone who is such a uh, history geek, like you said, uh, how do you decide like what parts of history to keep and like when it's okay to introduce historical inaccuracies for the sake of the story? Yeah, I mean that's a tough one. You, you know, that is the beauty of of being a fantasy writer in that you can kind of play in that historical sandbox, but you don't have to stick to everything rigorously. I think, you know, the the main thing for me is that the worlds I write feel authentic. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I, I um, you know, I, I enjoy researching the, the cultures 
to quite a high level is because I, you know, I feel like it gives a, just a, a flavor of authenticity to, to what you're writing so that everything is kind of consistent, not inconsistent. But you can bend the rules, you know, obviously with monsters. But I try to stick to the rules in terms of, say, weaponry, combat styles. I don't want to bend the rules too much there. I mean, sometimes you can. I know what one, so for example, one of the favorites that fantasy writers do is wearing swords on the back. Most reenactors and historians, you know, just they twitch at that because obviously that wasn't a historical thing because you can't wear a sword on your back really, unless the the sword is very short because you, you just physics don't allow you to draw a weapon, a sword across your back. So that's the thing that where you can bend the rules a little bit. The Witcher does it pretty well, and he gets away with it, I suppose. But it is, so it's things like that where fancy writers <laughs> yeah. can, can just tweak the historical rules just for you know the sense of fun or coolness, you know. Yeah, I wish I could remember which book I read this in, uh, but I think where I was first introduced to that with a sword on the back was a story where it was like a, they leaned into it. So it was kind of a cultural thing where you wore your sword on the back when you were presenting like in an, uh, like a rival's territory or something. So like it shows, okay, I am still armed, but I am basically defenseless because I can't draw my weapon on you, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's a nice way to squeeze it in. Of course, a lot of fantasy writers really enjoy drawing on history. Um, you know, I'm just one of many, many people that use that style. I suppose, I mean, George R. R. Martin famously, you know, is said to have based Westeros on um, the uh, the War of the Roses. You know, the House, the House of York and Lancaster became the Houses of Stark and Lannister. Uh, you know, lo- lots of writers do it. They kind of take inspiration. And I think the Red Wedding, was an actual event in Scottish history. So, um, we're inspired, you know, there, there were there were great similarities anyway. So, you know, lots of writers take take inspiration from history, but it's just about. I think the main thing is to be inspired by it, not to copy it. You know, so that you can you can kind of use it as a launch pad into crafting your own world and your own characters and and so on. Yeah. Well, speaking of crafting your own characters, uh, could you give us a brief intro into each of the three main point of view characters in The Shadow of the Gods? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So um, it starts with a lady called Orca. And um, I'm going to tread carefully because I don't want to give away spoilers. I mean, she's a woman approaching a middle age. She's around the around 40. And she kind of lives in the wilds with her husband and her son. And they're solitary people. They've built their own steading and kind of cabin in the woods, you know, their own kind of little small holding. They're trappers, so they trade with the local village um, when they need to. But they live quite a, you know, solitary, quiet life. And Orca is, um, so she's inspired. I, I often like to play with tropes. I mean, some people think tropes are dirty words these days. But, um, you know, I, I like to try and take a trope. Because I grew up on fantasy, you know, and, and I, I have a nostalgic feeling about those tropes that I read. But I, I like to try and take them and maybe turn them around a little bit, uh, do something that feels a bit fresh, maybe subvert them, or maybe just try and write them in a more kind of contemporary fashion. So Orca grew out of um, me wanting to write something around the trope of uh, the retired person of violence. For example, William Money in Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, that kind of character, you know. And I remember talking to my my agent, Julie Crisp, who's, who's brilliant, 
very early on in the days of the blood storm when I was telling her my first ideas of what I was hoping to do. And this, I mentioned this trope to her and during our conversation, you know, we thought, well, let's, one of the things we could do with this character is, is not make it a man, which is the traditional way of writing that trope. You know, most of, most of them that you think of um, are men. So, I thought I'll, I'll write this character as a, a woman, and that fits quite well with the, the Viking world as well, because Norse mythology is, you know, is scattered with shield maidens and Valkyries, and you know, very military uh, capable females. And historically, there's, you know, there's a, it's a bit of a debate at the moment because. Uh, historically, they thought that that was that was really kind of confined to, to the, the myths rather than history. But they've recently discovered a grave in a trading town called Burka, and there and this is a you know it's a well known historical site from the Viking era. And there is a, one of the graves there. It, it was just presumed it was a male because this skeleton was found in a grave with all of the accoutrements that a elite warrior would have so they were buried with a sword with their axe with um you know with gold fittings on their scabbard um with with a spear a shield uh, a horse bow and arrow you know and it's just always been presumed since his grave was discovered that it was a male and uh but you know dna testing and coding has has proved in the last couple of years beyond any doubt that it's actually a woman it's a female so um you know it's and and things like this are cropping up more these days as you know scientific research and technology uh, is advancing and so um it's a debate that's raging kind of in the historical world now about how many women actually stood in the shield wall in Norse times was it you know a few was it a lot we know that it was at least a one <laughs> because of this find there there've been a few other finds as well in different parts of Scandinavia that support it so Making um, females, you know, hardened warriors in this world is a good fit. So yeah, so so this is that's Orca. She's a retired person of violence, living a peaceful life with her family. But um, you know, as anyone who kind of reads my books or fantasy in general will, you know, you'll know that that's that's not going to stay so peaceful for for too long. So um, things happen that draw her into a, a larger conflict. Yeah, and part of the whole retired person of violence trope, I feel like, is uh, the retired person doesn't stay retired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a bit like Shane, isn't it, I suppose, the, the Western where he tries to retire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so that's her. And then you've got Varg, and he is a um, thrall or an ex-slave uh, or an ex-slave. He's basically, it starts off with him on the run. He's broken free from his owner's He's killed them and escaped, and he's being chased by the son of the, of his owner. And he has one burning desire. Basically, his sister has died, and uh, he needs to find a magician or a, a witch who can perform an akal, which is a conjuring, which will allow him to see the last few moments of her life because he believes she was murdered and he wants to find out how she died and who killed her. And that's kind of the starting point for Varg. So he's he's got these two threads where he's on the run, but he's also trying to um, uncover this mystery as to what happened to his sister. And he he ends up meeting a famed band of warriors called the Bloodsworn. 
and becomes um, embroiled in what's going on with them. So, so that's his thread. And then the other thread is uh, a young woman called Elvar, and she is a member of a mercenary band called the Battlegrim. And um, she is basically a noblewoman who has walked away from her life of privilege to earn her own battle fame. And battle fame is something that cropped up a lot when I was doing my research into the kind of Norse mythology and Scandinavian history. You can kind of equate it today to celebrity status, you know, where, whereas back in, in those times, people wanted to live on in tales and in songs. And, um, yeah, and it's, that's not just restricted to the Norse world. You know, you, you have that theme coming up in things like Greek mythology with Achilles, for example. You know, it's kind of that uh, have a short life, but, a, but burn bright and leave a tale that, that will be told for, for thousands of years. That's how you become famous, you know. So she's very much into that. That's her single goal in life, or that, that's her starting point anyway. She, you know, she's, she's younger. She's around um, 20, and that's, that's really her, her only focus in life is to earn that battle fame and prove to her family that, that she can do it on her own. You know, so uh, that's her starting point. She might, you know, I'm not saying that she'll necessarily still feel like that towards the end of the book or in book two, but that, that's how she starts off. And she starts off uh, where, with a hunt for a tainted, one of the tainted, Berserkia, uh, the Berserker. Um, someone with the blood of the uh, bear god running through their veins. So her warband, they are on the trail of one of these people. So that's the three characters, and, and that's kind of their threads as you start. Yeah, I love that. It gives you kind of a little bit of everything in different parts of the society. Uh, I'm curious, since we've been talking about weapons, how did you go about picking which weapon to assign for each of the characters? Uh, I assume there was maybe some thought into what would fit the story and what would fit their personalities. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, um, you know, obviously the, the one of the issues with writing a story like this is that you know I've chosen to write a warrior-centered culture, so they're all warriors of one sort of another. So, um, you know, but you, what you don't want is for them to all merge and become, uh, you know, so they all feel the same. So hopefully I've put all three of them in different social strata, which is, and that's really what determines, you know, their, their psychology, their, and their clothing, what they can afford, um, the kit they use. So Elvar, the, the, the youngest one I was talking about, this, she's the child of a Jarl. So she's um she's got a good kit, you know she'll have um coat of mail, ring mail which was which was not cheap, uh, it was a highly prized piece of kit. She'll uh, have a, a good helmet with a with a mail curtain to protect her neck. Again, uh, helmet was probably the most important part of a warrior's kit because you can get stabbed in the body and you, you might get back up, you get stabbed in the head and that's, you're not getting back up from that. So helmets were really, really prized and important pieces of kit, but she will also have a sword and swords were just, just like they were like the Rolex watch watches of their day. You know, they were, um, they were extremely expensive items and only the wealthy had them or an elite level warrior who could kill someone with a sword and take it off of their dead body. So Elvar has that kind of kit, very wealthy. Um, Varg, the runaway slave, starts off with nothing. 
no mail. He just he's just wearing a woolen tunic. Um, he's got an old cloak. Uh, he and his first weapon is a cleaver that that he just buys from a trader. That also kind of fits his style because he's obviously he's a slave. He hasn't had any combat training really. Although he's um, you know in his on the farm farm that he was enslaved upon, he uh, he was used it, uh, in pit fighting with his fists. So he's he's still got that kind of warrior agility and temperament, but he's got no kind of weapons craft or weapon skill with with any anything he has. So he was quite fun to write because I could take, you know, he, it, it was a, a nice way to kind of introduce you to the basics of Viking training um, by the, the Bloodsworn kind of putting him through his early stages of training, teaching him how to use a shield and spear and axe. So, yeah, so that's Varg. And then Orca, when she starts off, you know, she's... Um, She's not a warrior in her lifestyle. That's she's left that in her past. So um, she doesn't have any or any of that kit really. She just has the things that you would expect of a woods person, you know. So she has a spear, axe, and a, a sax, a hunting knife. That's pretty much you know her kit. No shield, no um, coat of mail because that's just not her lifestyle anymore. So yeah, that that's um, but she does know how to use them. Yeah, so you know that that's the difference between her and Varg, I suppose, is that she knows how to use her weapons quite well. And if the situation arises where she needs to, then then um, you know you've, you'll be a bit more confident that she'll come out of it quite well. So yeah, so that's the three. You know, that's how I went about deciding that what they would use, what they would wear, how the, you know the, the kind of psychology behind how they fight. I think it's always fascinating to kind of get the behind the scenes on that. And uh, all their weapons definitely fit them, like you're saying. But yeah, looking forward a bit, any upcoming projects you can talk about? I imagine you're still somewhat hard at work on the rest of the Bloodsworn saga. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm at this very moment I'm towards working towards the end of the first edit on Bloodsworn 2. So that means I've finished the first draft. I've handed it into my agent and my editor at orbit uk and they've given it an edit and sent that back to me with their comments and you know what they think could be tweaked and adjusted and i'm just working through that at the moment you kind of put a first draft down and then you go away and you think you think about it a bit and sometimes you want to change things or move things around so that's what happens in the first edits it's kind of the big the big changes or the big tweaks. And then, so that'll go back in a, a week or so. And then I'll wait for the copy edit, which is um, more about kind of um, uh, grammatical issues and that, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so, you know, that I'm working very much on that at the moment. And then I'll, I'll, I'm also thinking ahead to book three, which I'll be starting in the next couple of months, which will be the last book in the series. And whilst I'm doing that, I'm also thinking or coming up with ideas for what I'm going to do next. Um, after Bloodsworn 3. So, you, you know, th- this is the writer's life, I suppose. You, you, you're kind of dipping in and out of projects all, all the time. So it's all good fun. But, yeah, it's all, all, all moving forward. Uh, I don't think I can talk too much about what I'm thinking about as my next step because I only mentioned it to my agent the other day, the other day so she'd probably kill me if I started talking about <laughs> yeah. it before it's, it's been given any green lights. <laughs> Yeah, and I imagine, yeah, even if you did tell us about it, uh, by the time it actually comes out, it would probably look significantly different than anything you told us about. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, also just any good books you've read recently that you can recommend. Okay. So yes, I read, uh, well, I'm reading the uh, Peter V. Bretchney book at the moment. I'm about halfway through that. And that's, that's a great read. Uh, Desert, I can't remember. I'm terrible with titles, but it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a new (laughs) series, but it's a continuation of his old warded man series, which is a great premise, you know, with these demons that live in their callings that live in the court. So that's a lot of fun. I also read, um, uh, Jay Kristoff's, um, empire of the vampire not too long ago. And, And that's really a fantastic read. Um, you know, I'd highly recommend that. That was great. Artifact Space, I just read recently by um, Christian Cameron, which is his step into sci-fi, which was a lot of fun as well. Really enjoyed that. And um, he brings his usual kind of levels of authenticity to science fiction. And it's a, you know, it's a great take on reading something that's sci-fi. So, yeah, he's, you always know with Christian that whatever you read is going to be great. Um, so those are my most recent reads. Yeah, no, those those sound excellent. And then a way I kind of always like to close out these interviews, John, is just asking, what's one thing you're excited about right now? <laughs> Crikey, what am I excited about right now? Finishing my edits. <laughs> I'm excited about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very understandably. Uh, well, John, I believe that's all I've got for you today. Uh, this has been so much fun, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Travis. Oh, you know, I'm really grateful for the invite for you thinking of me. Thanks so much for um for asking me on. It's been a lot of fun. Hope I haven't bored you too much with um my talk about bearded axes and <laughs> stuff like that. Not even the slightest. That kind of thing is absolutely fascinating to me. Cool. That's great. You can find John Gwynn on Twitter as John Gwynn underscore, on Instagram as John underscore Gwynn underscore author, or at his website, john-gwynn.com. Check out the Shadow of the Gods for fun magic, action, and of course, giant dragons. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com, or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.